what a wonderful message that song has. That song has a special place in my wife and I's life. That song was playing at our wedding. But it speaks about when God become a man. That's the title of our message on Christmas Eve mornings. Hope you plan to be here for that. Today I'm going to do something a little different than normal. I'm going to use my laptop to help in my message. So if you give me just a moment to hook this up to the screen so you can see on the screen what I'm looking at on my computer here, I'd be very grateful. So just a moment, and uh, we will get started here. Sometimes computers don't work well. Okay. Uh, in your notes, you don't have notes. <laughs> and the reason for that is I'm going to be covering so much so quickly today, there's no way you can write it all down, and possibly I would lose you. And I don't want you to lose you this morning. I want you to pay attention. So just sit back and relax and listen and watch. I'm going to be covering a lot of scripture. I'm going to compare them, and you can see why I'm using my laptop. If you visit today, this is very rare that I use my laptop on Sunday mornings. But I'm going to cover a message that I think is very important for you to understand. We've been talking about the last several weeks, what to look for in a pastor. And I've given you some essential elements that are non-negotiable things that you ought to look for in the next pastor of First Baptist Church. The very first one, of course, was the gospel message. You should look for a pastor that preaches a pure, clear presentation of the gospel because there's so much unclear messages, so many false messages out there today. And I encourage the next pastor to make sure that his gospel is not only a pure gospel without any works, but also very clear, clearly presented so anyone can understand. Then I talked about another essential element is good, godly Christian music. How many realize there's different uh, types of music in churches today? But I believe, how many believe that the music you hear on Sunday morning you come to church ought to be different than the music you would hear in a bar on Saturday night? Now, I'm not encouraging you to go to the bar on Saturday night. <laughs> But I'm trying to say, in many churches, there is no difference. It's the same. The lyrics might be different, but the music is the same. My friend, that ought not be so. And the next pastor of this church ought to have a, a, a principle on good, godly, conservative Christian music. But today, another essential element, I believe is non-negotiable, is using the right Bible version. Using the right Bible version. There are a lot of different versions of the Bible out there. And as a church, we use what is called the King James Version. So which Bible should I use? Let me, real quickly, I'm going to show you different Bibles I have, and then uh, you can see. I'm not going to use these all today, but this is part of my collection I have in my office. And just to let you know, uh, many of you may know these. This is called The Good News for Modern Man, very popular. Uh, this one is called the Teenage Version Bible. It's put in a version, uh, uh, different lang uh, English languages, easier to understand. And here is called the New English Bible, very popular. Uh, here's one, this is interesting, it's called the Holy Spirit Encounter Bible. It is a, a New Living Translation. Here we have what is called the New King James Version. And here we have, very popular in the 70s, called the Living Bible. The Living Bible is not a Bible. It is a paraphrase of the Bible. Uh, a man by the name of, um, oh gosh, 
Anyway, <laughs> my, my, my blank. He read his, read his Bible to the children. The children asked him, what does that mean, Daddy? He had paraphrased it in his own words and eventually read the whole Bible that way. So this is a paraphrase of a man's, his name was Taylor. That's his name, Taylor. So it's not a Bible at all. It's just a paraphrase of the Bible, a man's interpretation. And here's one that has 26 translations in one book. So these are all different versions of the Bible. Some are versions, some are perversions. But they are many different translations. So the question is, which Bible should I use? I'm sure you may have different translations, different versions. And, I, and why? So the question is, by the way, there are over 100 different English translations of the Bible. Do you realize that? There's a new one coming in every year, almost. Over 100 different English translations of the Bible. Many of the newer translations are written in modern English and are easier to understand. So the question is, why does First Baptist Church use the KJV, it means King James Version, which is an older translation? I'm going to share that with you this morning. And I believe this is a non-negotiable of the next pastor. And I'm going to show you why this morning. So there's four words we want to look at this morning to understand God's Word. The first one is inspiration. The second one is magnification. The third one is preservation. And the last one is translation. So let's look at this all concerning God's Word. The first one, inspiration. We believe as a church in what is called the plenary verbal inspiration. The word plenary means every, complete, entire. The word verbal means the spoken, uttered word. And the inspiration means God breathed. We believe that every word in the Bible is inspired of God. There's many people today say the thoughts are inspired, or the chapters are inspired, or the sentences are inspired. I believe the very words of God are inspired by God. In fact, I'm going to show you later on, even the parts of the letter that makes up the word are inspired of God. We believe that every word is inspired of God. Here's a verse we base this upon. What's the first word there? Does it say some? Does it say most? It says all scripture. The word scripture means the holy writ. The written part, the Bible itself, is given by inspiration of God. That means God breathed. And it's profitable for things. It is profitable for doctrine. Doctrine tells you what is right. Reproof tells you what is not right. Correction tells you how to get right. And instruction, how to stay right. Everything you need in the Bible to be right with God is found in Scripture. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all God's Word. It is His Word inspired by Him, given to man. Another verse on inspiration, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Peter said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, about the Old Testament, is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word moved means to be born, carried along, controlled, directed by. It has a picture of a sailing ship that is controlled by the wind. As the wind carries that, directs that ship, and it goes the same way the Holy Spirit directly controlled the men of God who write the Bible. 
These holy men were men chosen by God to speak God's word. Over 500 times in the Bible, Old Testament, when the prophets spoke, you know what they said? Thus saith the Lord. And then they would speak, showing what they're going to say is from God. It is God's word, not their own. So we believe as a church, the Bible is inspired of God. Every word is the very word of God himself. Scripture is God-breathed, means inspired. That is, God's word were given through men, superintended by the Holy Spirit, so that their writings are without error. Look at that again, please. Scripture is God-breathed, inspired. That is, God's words were given through men, superintended by the Holy Spirit, so that their writings are without error. This is where many do not believe. They say, how can a infallible God, perfect God, use an imperfect man to produce a perfect book? Good question then. How can a perfect God use an imperfect man to produce a perfect book? How many believe that God can do anything? He can do that. He can use infallible men to produce an infallible book. And he did that. The Word of God. I can remember when I was in third grade, there was a game the teacher would play. Play about once a quarter, and we loved it. It was always funny to do this. She would come into class. She'd have a little short story written on a piece of paper, very short. And she'd go over to the student on the far corner and whisper that story in the student's ear. And when he got done, then that student whispered to the next student, the next student, next student, all the way to got to the back. Take her about an hour to do all this. And the last student would get up and tell the story. And it changed so much you could not even recognize it. She read the story from the beginning, this is the story of the end, and through the interpretation of those speaking and the word changes, you didn't understand it. You didn't resemble that. And people today said, that's the way the Bible is. It's been passed down from generation to generation for hundreds of years, and what we have today is nowhere near to what it was in the beginning. My friend, that is not true. We're going to show you that God promised, he inspired his word, but he promised to preserve his word. The next key word about the Bible, not only inspiration, but magnification. Please don't miss this. Magnification. Philippians 2.9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, the name Jesus Christ. God's exalted his name above every name. How many, let me ask you this. Does it bother you when you hear someone take the Lord's name in vain? It's almost like someone taking the fingernail and dragging down a chalkboard. Remember that? Gosh, that's terrible. And when someone uses God's name in vain, that's why it bothers me. Because God, the Bible said, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every name. At his name, every knee should bow. By the way, Muhammad will bow. Buddha will bow. Confucius will bow. Obama will bow. Biden will bow. And Trump will bow. And by the way, you will bow. One day we'll all bow. You can bow now in faith or bow later in judgment, but you will bow. That's what the Bible says. But he's given him a name above every name. But God's exalted something above his very name. And what is that? Psalm 138. David said, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word 
above all thy what? Wow. As much as we exalt and love and praise the name of Jesus, my friend, God's exalted his word above that. So to God, his word's very important. It ought to be the same to you. Is inspiration and magnification. Number three, preservation. Here's the verse we read together at the very beginning. What a wonderful promise this is. Psalm 12, verse 6. David said the words, the words of the Lord are pure words. The word, the word pure means without any mixture of error or fault. As the silver is tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. By the way, the word seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. Purified seven times. And it goes on to say, thou shalt keep them. The word them goes back to the words. The word keep means to guard or protect. God will guard or protect his words. And thou shalt, what's the next one say? Preserve them from this generation for how long? Here's a promise from God himself. When he gave his word, he said, first of all, I'm going to keep them, protect them. And he says, but also, I'm going to preserve them from the generation it was given to forever. So even though we don't have any of the original copies of the Bible, all we have are copies. But the God of heaven who gave his word, he said, when I gave it to men, I'm going to protect it, but also I'm going to preserve it. That what we have today, I believe, is the inerrant, infallible word of God. It is trustworthy and it is dependable because it's God's word. So why do you believe that? Because God promised it. That's his promise to us. Let me show you verses on preservation. And I, there's many of them. I just scratched the surface today. Many of you have seen these. But look what it says, please. <clears throat> Psalm 33, 11. The counsel, come out God's word. Counsel of the Lord standeth, what? Forever. The thoughts of his heart to, what? All generations. The next one, Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. How many like that part? And his mercy is everlasting. He goes on to say, and his truth endureth to all generations. When he gave his truth through the prophets of the Old Testament, through the New Testament, he said, I will preserve it, endure it forever to all generations. Another one, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass writheth, the flower fainteth, but the word of our God shall stand again. How long? Forever. I'm sure you've seen flowers fading and grass withering. My friend, that's not God's word. His word shall stand forever. Another verse, Matthew 5, 18. I love this verse. Jesus said, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What does that mean? Now, what is a jot? What is a tittle? These are parts of the Hebrew alphabet. Just like in the English alphabet, the dotting of an I, the crossing of a T. What is Jesus saying here? Not only are the thoughts inspired, not only are the chapters inspired, not only are the sentence inspired, not only are the words are inspired, not only are the letters are inspired, but the very parts of the letter. He said the dotting of an I, the crossing of a T, shall not pass till all be fulfilled. That's how precise he was in inspiration and preservation. He preserved even the very letters that make up the words that preach the truth to God's people. Another one, Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. How many grateful for that? 
1 Peter 1.25. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. I'm so grateful that God preserved his word. Even the gospel message is preserved with God given to us. What he, the apostles preached in the New Testament is the same gospel we have today presented in the word of God. All right. Look at this. Because of God's preservation, we not only believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures in the original autographs, but also in the copies we presently have. We do not have the originals. The originals that the prophets wrote, the originals that the apostles wrote are gone. All we have are copies. And many times the copies are copies are copies. <laughs> but God said, because of his preservation, we believe in inerrancy and infallibility in the scriptures and the originals, but also in the copies we presently have. I believe with all my heart, I can say it boldly, I have the word of God right here. And this is what I preach. I believe from cover to cover. I believe the cover when it says Holy Bible. I believe this is the word of God from cover to cover. And I believe that God preserved it and gave it to us for us today. The next one, number four, we talked about inspiration, magnification, preservation, and now translation. Don't miss this, please. This is where I'm going with all this. The Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, is what is called the Masoretic text. That's the text we have of the Old Testament, which our Old Testament in the English version is based upon the Masoretic text. Now, the New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in the Greek. There are over 5,000 manuscripts, means copies. We have whole books. We have parts of a book. We have pages of the book. We have partial pages. We have over 5,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament. Some of the oldest manuscripts is what is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Heard of them? The Dead Sea Scrolls were found by a little shepherd boy. He was out watching his sheep, and his sheep got away, and they saw a cave up in the mountain, and he went up there, and he threw a rock in the cave, as a sheep there might run him out. He threw a rock in there, and heard something go clink, and the rock and went clink, and he went in there to find out there were clay jars in there sealed that had copies of the Old Testament. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some of the oldest copies of the Bible, and they are now preserved in a museum in Israel itself. And some of the oldest manuscripts. We don't have any of the originals. All we have are copies. But we have over 5,000 manuscripts. Whole books, parts of a book, chapters, just verses, and small pages. But over 5,000 of them that make up the New Testament. Now, please listen. Don't miss this next part, please. Look over to your left. I'm going to use my little laser light here. This is talking about the New Testament. At the top, you have the original autographs that date back from 40 to 100 A.D., all the way from Matthew, all the way to Revelation of the original autographs. From them, we don't have the original, we have copies. You have three different texts. You have the Western text, the tra traditional text, and also the Alexandrian text. The Western text is where we get, they get the Latin Vulgate, the Catholic Bible, that date back to 450 A.D., then you have what is called the traditional text, dates back to 450 A.D. This is called the majority text, where we get what is called the Texas Receptive. 
of the 5,000 manuscripts, over 95 to 97% make up this traditional text. This reason is called the majority text. From this text, called the Textus Receptus, we get several Bibles through church history. You'll recognize some, some you may not. You have what is called the Ormulan Bible. You have the Wycliffe. You ever John Wycliffe? In 1400, he translated a Bible from the, this traditional text. Then you have the Tyndale. Heard of William Tyndale? He translated a Bible in 1526. You have the, Col the Coverdale Bible. Then you have the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible. That was the Pilgrim's Bible. When they come overseas, you had a Geneva Bible. And also, then you have the Bishop's Bible. And from that Texas Receptus, the majority text, the traditional text, you had the King James Bible, translated in 1611, then is updated in 1769, then also in 1979. All come from the majority text. But over to your left, you have what is called the Alexandrian text from Egypt and North Africa, date back to 300, 400 AD. From this text, you have two copies. You have what is called the Codex Vaticatus, found in the Vatican Library in Rome. They still have it. Then you also have the Codex Sinaiticus, found in a monastery in Mount Sinai. Let me give you a little history on these two for this. The Codex Vaticatus is considered to be the most authoritative of the minority. Let me go back again. This is called the majority text because it makes up 97% of the 5,000 manuscripts. This is called the minority text because this makes up about 2 or 3% of the 5,000 manuscripts. And from that, you get the Codex Vaticatus. It says here, although it's it's responsible for over 36,000 changes that appear in versions today. This manuscript was found in 1481 in a Vatican library in Rome, was currently held. It's believed that some authorities claim that it was a batch of 50 Bibles ordered from Egypt by the Roman Emperor Constantine. The Roman Church still has that. Then the next one's called the Codex Sinaiticus, was discovered by a German theologian in 1841. And he, his own words, he found it in a trash can and a dump of a bunch of manuscripts that were thrown out. And so that's the, called the Codex Sinaiticus. Now, next thing, don't miss this, please. You have two men called Westcott and Hort. Westcott, his name was Brooke Foss Westcott, an Anglican bishop, professor at Cambridge University, and Fenton John Anthony Hort, also an ordained priest, who produced a Greek New Testament in 1881 from these two manuscripts. Now, the early church rejected these manuscripts because they said they were full of fault. No wonder one's found in the library. I'm not a library, but a, a, a trash can. They rejected them. They considered they were corrupted texts and made up a very small amount. And so all these men here rejected these texts. However, these two men did something different in church history. They found these two manuscripts and wrote a new translation of the Bible, a new Greek text, and please listen. Look at the bottom. All modern English translations come from this text. I'm going to show you these two men here were liberals. They denied the deity of Christ. They did not believe in the blood atonement. They did not believe in hell. They did not believe in the infallibility of the scriptures. 
and yet they put together Greek texts, and I'm going to show that many of the views of these doctrines were show forth in their Greek texts. And all the modern Bible versions come from what is called the minority text, the West Cotton Hort text, except for the New King James. Now keep that in mind. So the issue is the text. I'm not trying to exalt one book over the other book. The issue is what text did it come from? The King James come from the majority text, the Texas Receptus, the same text that makes up with 97% of the manuscripts, which the early church and all the uh, fathers of Reformation used to translate their Bibles. The, the text that was rejected by them is what Westcott and Hort text used to translate the Greek New Testament. And from that, all the newer versions of the Bible come from the West Cotton Hort text, the minority text, and not the majority text. Have I, I got you so far? So please, let's continue. When a comparison made, KJV means the King James Version. Please listen. Look on the screen. NIV, you've heard of that before? The New International Version, probably the most popular version today. 17 whole verses are omitted. 180 significant portions of verses are omitted. 173 names of our Lord are omitted. And 229 differences that have a substantial effect on the meaning are omitted. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, 16 whole verses are omitted. 185 significant portions of verses are omitted. 200 names of our Lord are omitted and 237 differences that have a substantial effect on its meaning. Now, I didn't know this for a long time. In my Bible, I'm assuming my computer, I have a Bible program when I prepare the messages. And I have a comparison. I got a King James, I got NIV, New American Standard, Living Bible, all together, and side by side, I just read them together. And many times I look up a verse, King James, it's not in this version. So where'd it go? And the text are the issue because they come from what is called the corrupted text. There were so many whole verses, partial verses, are left out because the NIV and the New American Standard take it from the West Cotton Hort text and not the traditional text. Let me give you just a few of the complete omissions. King James Version, 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. What a wonderful verse to teach the Trinity. By the way, West Cotton Hort did not believe in the Trinity. And so you go to a translation from their Greek text, NIV, the whole verse is omitted. You go to the ESV, the English Standard Version, very popular today, whole verse is omitted. Now, some of the newer translations have it, but put brackets around it. In the margin, it says, with the bracket, says, many believe these are not in the original, therefore not have any authority. It caused the reader to question. Another verse, Acts 8, 37. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let me give the context here. And when this verse brought to my attention, it really threw me for a loop. Many years ago, when I've been, uh, as I've become pastor, I've been here about two years, a co older couple visited our church, and I visited them. Come to find out, they were not saved. They come from a Roman Catholic background, and I asked them in our conversation and visitation, I said, listen, can I ask you a question? 
I said, if you die today, would you go to heaven? He said, Pastor, I sure hope so. I said, can I show you from the Bible how you can know? He said, please. She said, but wait a minute. My daughters gave me a brand new Bible. It's a new international Bible. Can you use that Bible? I said, sure, I can use that. So I used the NIV to lead her to Christ. Now, that would be not my preference, but she wanted to be able to mark the verses in her Bible. I did not bring up the translation issue. I just used her Bible. And when I got done, they both prayed to receive Christ. I said, now that you're saved, the first thing God would have you do is to be baptized. Oh, we were baptized. We were baptized as babies. And I said, well, you know that many churches do that. That's a tradition, but it's nowhere found in the Bible. It's a church tradition that has no biblical basis. The Bible says you first believe, then you're baptized. Baptism comes after faith in Christ. She said, show me that in the Bible. I said, I'm glad you asked. And I said, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And so I said, in the context here is Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch, he read to him the book of Isaiah and preached unto him Jesus. And the eunuch said, hey, here's water. What's hindered me from being baptized? And this is what he said. He said, if thou believest all thy heart, thou mayest. And he said, I answered, and believe, I believe that Jesus Christ, Son of God, said, you believe and you'll be baptized. So here's a verse of baptism comes after faith. NIV, it's not there. <laughs> I couldn't use that. I, that's when I first found out it wasn't there. In ESV, it is omitted. Another one. And by the way, West Cotton Hort believed in infant baptism. And maybe he, they changed this or got rid of it because they proved that baptism comes after salvation, not before. The KJV, Matthew 8, 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. NIV, the verse is not there. ESV, the verse is not there. Matthew 23, 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses for the pretense, make long prayer, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Look up that verse in IV, and guess what? It's not there. Look it up in the ESV, it is not there. Here are some partial omissions. We cannot cover all of them, but some partial omissions. And the KJV, a wonderful verse we looked at two weeks ago. If by grace it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more of grace, otherwise work is no more work. You look up that part underlined in the NIV, guess what? It's not there. The latter part of the verse is not in the NIV. It's not in the ESV. It has been omitted. Another one in the King James Version. 1 John 5, 13, how many know that verse? My, one of my favorite ones. These things have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So this is written, written to those who believe, so you can know you have eternal life. But if you don't believe, you won't know it. It's also written that you might believe. That latter part, guess what? Is left out of these two versions. Another partial omission. In Luke 4, verse 4, this is the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, Jesus speaking to Satan, and Jesus answered and saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Guess what that underlying person is left out and left out. You know, think about this. I find it's ironic. These new versions is not every word of God. It leaves out so many. By the way, if you go to a Christian bookstore, 
and say, I want to buy a Bible, what would you recommend? They, chances are they won't recommend a King James Version. They re recommend the new translations. And what you ought to say, listen, I need a discount because that's only part of the Bible. It's not all there. So give me a discount, I might buy it. And how true that is, but they won't give me a discount because it doesn't have every word of God. Another one. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of, sin. how, how, forgiveness of sins. How many of the blood of Christ is important? Go to the NIV, it is not there. Go to ESV, it's not there. Go to the New American Standard, it's not there. It's believed that the West Cotton Horde did not believe in the blood atonement, so they left it out. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's not there. Now, to be honest, the blood of Christ is used in other scriptures in the New Version, but at least that verse, that part is left out. Now, some differences that weaken major doctrines. Don't miss this now, please. Differences that weaken major doctrines. The first one, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Notice what it says there. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Here's a verse that clearly teaches the deity of Christ. And it says, God was manifest in the flesh. There's a question. When did God take on human flesh? In the person Jesus Christ. Now go to the NIV. Look what it says. He appeared in the body. You can't use that verse to teach the deity of Christ. ESV, he was manifested. It takes the word God and makes it a he. So it weakens the doctrine. And by the way, West Cotton Hort did not blame the deity of Christ. Another one here, teach the deity of Christ. Romans 14. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of who? Christ. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to what? Now, is that a contradiction? No, because Christ is God. Look what the NIV says. God's judgment seat. It changed it from the judgment seat of Christ, now called God's judgment seat. And over here, this says the same thing. So you cannot use these verses to teach the deity of Christ. Now, some differences that teach false doctrine. Not only weaken major doctrines, but teach false doctrine. Here's a wonderful scripture. Luke chapter 2, verse 33. It says, and Joseph and his mother marveled at the things which were spoken by him. This is when Jesus was 12 years old in the temple teaching the Pharisees. And notice the Holy Spirit, when he guided Luke to pen this, made it clear that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. It said Joseph and his what? Mother. But look what the NIV says. The child's father and mother. Yes, V. His father and mother. My friend, that's heresy. Jesus, Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Who was Jesus' father? God was. And so these verses imply that Joseph was his father. That is false. Another one, King James Version. Oh, this ought to... You ever heard the term, make the hair stand on the back of your neck? This ought to do that. John 3, 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It makes a distinction between who's saved and who's not saved. Those who believe in Christ have everlasting life. Those who do not believe shall not see life. Well, what does the NIV say? I'm glad you asked. 
He who believes the Son has life, but he who does not obey. Here it teaches works for salvation. You have to obey now to be saved. That's what the NIV teaches. I'm sorry, the NASB, the National Version, but also the ESV says the same thing, does not obey. They change from does not believe those who do not obey. So I can use these versions to teach obedience to Christ for salvation. My friend, that's false doctrine. Now, let's wrap it up. As a church, we believe the Bible is given by inspiration of God. We believe God promised to preserve his word for every generation. Inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures has been made possible through inspiration and God's preservation. There are three reasons why we use the King James Version. Number one, theological reasons. Some new Bibles are dangerous because they of the theological bias of their translations. Translators, look up here. Here, this is what is called the Revised Standard Version. This is the authorized version of the World Council of Churches. And let me share something with you for the sake of time. Isaiah 7.14, a wonderful verse, talking about the virgin birth of Christ, prophesied by Isaiah. We know this, behold, that God shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son that shall call his name Emmanuel. Listen to what this verse says. It says here, therefore, the Lord shall give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. It removes the word virgin to young woman. Now, we know the word sign means a miraculous deed. Is it miraculous for a virgin to conceive? Yes. Is it miraculous for a young woman to conceive? No. It happens every day. So it takes away the virgin birth in this version translated from the West Cotton Hort text and teaches something that's very dangerous that's wrong. We chosen that because also because of complete and partial omissions of Scripture found in the newer translations. We choose the King James also because of the differences that weaken major doctrines and those that teach false doctrine. The second reason we choose the King James is textual reasons. God has preserved his word in the Masoretic text of the Old Testament and the Texas Receptus of the Greek New Testament uh, in the Greek New Testament. The King James Bible is God's word preserved in the English language because it's translated from the preserved Hebrew and Greek text. The third reason, practical reasons. Consistency in position and practice compels us to use the above mention of the Hebrew and Greek text and the King James translation for our church, Christian school, Sunday school, Awana, Vacation Bible School, Blast Kids Club, and all other ministries for preaching and teaching and memorization. We believe the King James is God's preserved word in the English language. Now, let me close with this. Thank you for listening. I know I've went over a little bit, but don't let me lose you. There is a common phrase taught in liberal seminaries. And they go into conservative church like ours, and they make a statement that sounds good, unless you understand it. They say, the Bible contains the Word of God. Is that true? It does not. The Bible is the Word of God. Now, this one contains the Word. This one is the Word. In my kitchen, I have 
a drawer. All of the kitchen, all the drawers, my wife's drawer. I would call it a junk drawer. <laughs> it has everything I need to, for honeydews around the house. It has nails, it has screws, it has a hammer, it has everything. Now I could tell you with honesty that drawer contains nails. It does, but it contains things that's not nails. When a preacher says the Bible contains the Word of God, what they mean it contains something that's not the Word of God. So if you hear that phrase, little antennas might come up. My friend, this does not contain the Word. It is the Word of God from cover to cover. And so I would encourage you, the next passage you choose, find out what Scripture he uses. And I believe this is a non-negotiable. Not only the gospel message, conservative Christian music, but also the Bible version he uses. Because there's so many versions out there, some of them are perversions. And that's the reason we use the King James, because I believe since God promised to preserve his word, he's done so in the English language in the King James Version. That is the reason I believe this book is infallible and errant word of God. I believe that all my heart, if I did, I'd quit my job. I can preach it with all boldness, say this is God's word. Not this one. Not this one. This is the uh, NASB version here because it contains things that's not. And I wish I had more time. The time is gone. And uh, thank you for your attention. We're talking about essential elements in the pasture you're going to choose. The Bible version he uses is one of them. You, you know, you say you close your Bible. You didn't use your Bible. I'll close my computer. <laughs> I hope you see why I used my computer this morning. I want you to see something very important. Let me close with this, please. One of the most wonderful things about the Bible, it tells us how we can know we have eternal life. It tells us how we can know what, where we're going to go when we die. We're all going to die one day, aren't we? Someone said the most democratic thing in, in life is death, because we're all going to participate in it. One day you will die. In fact, the Bible says it is pointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So my friend, one day you will die. Where, where will you go? The Bible says every one of us will live somewhere forever. You'll go to heaven with God or go to hell separate from God. Which one will you go? The Bible says that you can know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you to go through life hoping or guessing or wondering where you're going to go when you die. You can know it because of what Christ did for you. All the work, all the merit, all the deeds required of you to enter God's presence, Jesus did on the cross. And the Bible refers to it as his finished work. We can go to heaven through what he did for us, not what we do for him. And the work, the price was paid in full. The work was complete by Jesus Christ. And I, you can go to heaven through what he did. Our part is to receive Christ as our Savior. But to as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God. And the moment you receive Christ as your Savior, trust him to save you and give you eternal life, God gives you home in heaven at that moment. Can you say that? Do you know heaven's your home? If not, why not trust Christ today? Let's bow together, please. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we conclude our service. Thank you for your attention. I know I covered a lot. I've gone over a little bit, but thank you. I want you to see something that's crucial in the next pastor. That you look for someone who uses the right Bible version. I hope you can see clearly why we have chosen to use the King James Bible over the other newer translations. But what's wonderful about the Bible 
as it says, we can know heaven's our home. That we don't have to go through life wondering where we're going to go when we die. We can know we have eternal life, and it comes by simply trusting Jesus Christ to be your Savior. It's gained not by trying, not by doing, but by trusting. Trusting in what he did for you on the cross to forgive you and give you eternal life. And God will save you, he'll forgive you, and give you a home in heaven if you receive his son to be your Savior. And my friend, you can do it right now. You can get that, settled, that decision settled, settled by trusting Christ as your Savior here today. Say, Pastor, I like to do that, but I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to say. If you want to know, make certain heavens your home, why not talk to God right where you're sitting and just say something like this. Just say, God of heaven, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I've done things wrong. And because I've sinned, I've earned, I deserve your punishment. And the judgment for my sin is death in a place called hell. And God, I cannot save myself. But God, I believe that your son Jesus was punished for my sins. I believe when he died, he died for me to pay for my sin. He was buried, and I believe he rose again. And right here today, I want to trust Christ to be my Savior. I want to trust him to forgive me and to give me eternal life. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. My friend, if you trusted Christ as your Savior, you did that today, heaven's your home. God saves you the moment you do that. And the Bible says you can know heaven's your home. But if you did that today, I'd like to know. I want to pray for those who made that decision. So with heads bowed and eyes are closed, no one will be put on the spot. If you trusted Christ as your Savior today, we just simply right where you at, just raise your hand so I can pray for you. And we're all, Pastor, here's my hand. I prayed that prayer with you. I trusted Christ. Would you pray for me? You want it all this morning. Father in heaven, I hope that means each one here has already made that decision that heaven's your home, they have eternal life. If I pray that we that know Christ would be urgent and diligent about telling others how to go to heaven too. We're so grateful for the one who told us. May we pass the word along to others also. So Father, bless this church as they seek a new pastor. In Christ's name we pray, amen.